Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we welcome renowned economist Don Drummond, who discusses the Bank of Canada's latest interest rate decision, as well as the overall health of Canada's economy. Don has held several senior roles at the Federal Department of Finance, including Associate Deputy Minister, where he was responsible for economic analysis and fiscal and tax policies. Don and host Pamela Ritchie discuss the Bank of Canada's decision to hold the key interest rate at 5%. Don says the key thing now is how the BOC revises inflation. He's concerned with the zero-level output gap we're coming to where excess demand was slightly greater than supply, but now is nearing a zero gap. He believes we need to create slack in our economy. Right now, the economy is sitting right on its supply capacity, so there's currently no slack to rely on. The housing market can help with this, but right now the market is showing resilience, still lots of demand for houses, and still a lot of people coming into Canada looking for homes. Don also discusses the country's upcoming fiscal report and what he thinks should be a long-term plan to get out of debt, and his thoughts on a possible recession in this inflationary environment. This podcast was recorded on October 26, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Do you see a cut anywhere in the next, I don't know, quarter or two? Definitely not the next quarter or two. I find the key thing is how they revise their inflation outlook. They say inflation is going to stay around 3.5%, which is just ever so slightly lower than it is right at this moment through the mid part of next year and not go back to their target until well into 2024. Now, they're supposed to look forward and they should react to that. But I don't think that we should be. I, I think there's at least an, as much chance of maybe another interest rate hike in the next couple of quarters as there is. One of the bottom lines, and I wish the bank would put more emphasis and I wish the media would pay some attention to it, was that they got us around the zero output gap. And I know you talked about the supply and, and demand coming into balance. They got it from actually excess demand, slightly greater than supply, to a very narrow gap. Let's round it off and say it's zero. So for all this weakening, we're just sitting at a balanced economy. So the idea is to create slack, which would reduce inflation pressure. We don't actually have slack. The, the, the direction of change is to slow. But the level of the economy is sitting right on a supply capacity. So, there is so no slack. Actual slack would come from what? Well, it is from the interest rate mechanism. One would typically have it from a weakening of the housing market. But they did say the housing market has been surprisingly resilient. I think 500,000 immigrants has something to do with that. And, and even that's kind of misleading because we get about 180,000 temporary foreign workers and we've got lots of people coming in on visas as well. So we may even have something like 700,000 more people coming. We're building about 225,000 housing starts per year. Um, that's 
suggests that there's still going to be a lot of demand for housing. And prices have weakened somewhat in a lot of markets, but they still remain very high. So that one traditional mechanism hasn't weakened very much. Consumption's definitely weakened, but it hasn't collapsed by any means. And what and what would be the other way of creating slack? I mean, I, I assume you're going to go to wages and, and the labor story. Well, that normally doesn't come for a while. There's there's always a sequence because you have multi-year contracts and some of the wages are indexed, but they're indexed with a lag. When inflation goes up and it goes up very suddenly, as it did in our case in 2021 and 22, you know, you may have had a 2% wage increase. Well, look at the Ontario civil servants. They were legislated at 1% for three years. The third year got upturned by the Supreme Court. But when inflation first takes off, your wages lag. Now your three-year contract is up. You're not only looking for an increase going forward that's going to match inflation, but you're looking for catch-up. So you get wages lag on the way up. But then as inflation is coming down, you got wages still going up. So it's, you know, and a big deal was made. And there was a whole bunch of media stories that the Bank of Canada said wages aren't typically the source of inflation. Well, that's true, but they can be an impediment for it to come down. And as the bank noted in their report, almost all the measures of wage increases have increased between four and five percent. Now, even if we're running one percent productivity, that means a three to four percent increase in unit labor costs, and that is not consistent with two percent inflation. So it may not have been our source of our inflation problem, but it's sure gonna make it difficult to get back to two percent. This this sort of comes it fits in the basket of what's sticky inflation and what you know, what helps inflation to remain sticky and still present with us. So we're at 5%. How do you think commentary is surrounding what the Bank of Canada said yesterday? I mean, we saw them say, for instance, you know, there's there's more sort of relief in the pipeline, I think was one of the lines in terms of the inflation story. What What is that to you? Supply and demand, which we mentioned off the top, approaching balance. Okay, take us into some of these other pieces and, and what you think the reaction to the overall report was by markets possibly, but really sort of commentary. Well, I think the reaction from markets, if you view it from people from investment companies and banks and you look at it from the media was it's kind of dovish. Um, right. Some had the headlines, they've, they've turned the page and that kind of stuff. And I felt- You agree with that? No, I, I said, maybe I should go back to school and take a literacy course because that's not how I read the report. I read them as being, hey, things are, have got better. There's no doubt that the medicine is working to some degree, but I view them as being very worried. And their their words and their numbers are stark why they're worried that all the key measures of inflation they look at, their three key measures, just a simple thing like the CPI excluding food and energy, are all stuck in the three and a half to four percent range. That's almost double their target. And the wages are at four and five percent. And there is no slack in the economy. How can you not be worried? To me, that comes across in their text. But I, I guess it's kind of a fatigue. And you know a bad news, a fatigue of inflationary bad news. And and this this shock and this discomfort of of what particularly younger people think are shockingly high mortgage rates. They're not used to that, and I get that. There's a new subdivision going by where I walk my daughter's dog, and uh, there was two people at one of the sites. I didn't realize one of them is a property owner. Another guy was going to put the foundation in. Forty-two new lots. He's the first one to build, and they were sold three years ago. And I said, "What gives here? Why is nobody building?" And the foundation guy says. Two words, interest rates. 
And I go, uh, they paid a half a million for these lots and they're going to pay two million for the houses. They're not living paycheck to paycheck. High interest rates, he repeats. And I said, you guys are younger than me. I'm going to tell you a thing or two about high interest rates. 1982, 17 to 22%, those are high. But it, it is a shock and a fatigue. And yeah, particularly for those people that are coming off these super low mortgage rates, one and a half percent, 1.65. Lots of people got them, whether they're variable or fixed. And going into much higher rates, it's, it, it is up as a shock. And on top of everything else, it's very hard to encompass into your, but, into your budget. But, 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 John, are you, like, just correct me if I'm wrong, but are you suggesting that commentary around what the Bank of Canada is doing is seeing it as dovish just because they're tired of the alternative yeah. pocket? They're, there, there is a perception of the things are, are really terrible. And for a lot of people, undoubted they are. There's a perception that interest rates are super high. They're not. Um, the anomaly by any stretch of the imagination through history, and you can go back a thousand years from records in Europe if you want, the anomaly was the period of the last 20 years up until 2022. It wasn't that. I mean, it wasn't just me paying 17% of my first mortgage in 1982. My parents' generation had the mortgage rate fixed by legislation at 6%. Like my generation thought that was a heck of a deal, but somebody who's got 1.65 would think, whoa, that's outrageous. Now, mind you, the housing prices were a lot lower. And again, we're not seeing the collapse of the housing prices because with this population growth, there's an underlying demand for the housing. And it's not just in the urban centers. The demand is firmed up in more rural centers as well. And a lot of the immigrants, this is a turn in our history. A lot of the immigrants are not only coming into places like New Brunswick, but they're staying. Even right. before when they managed to get them they didn't necessarily retain them but that's changing the nature of even the smaller provinces too i want to circle back to housing because it's a big piece of it but i just want to ask you about the the federal government's ability to maintain paying debt pay, debt payments with interest rates at the rate that they're at they are also suffering from a rapid increase in interest rates where where does where does the line of sort of the fiscal story say hold up here they're unfortunate. One of the many weaknesses of economics that we could go on for the whole hour of that we shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> no one has ever really come up with a credible measure what an appropriate debt burden is. And, and in fact, in the early 2000s, there was a conference, Is the Debt War Over? And all the finest public finance minds in Canada came together to try to do this. And, and the numbers were just all over the place. But Near the end, Chris Reagan, a professor at McGill, asked a straw poll, forget all your theories and all your equations stuff. What do you think is an appropriate level? And the average of the audience of all these public finance people was up 20 to 25 percent for the federal, 10 to 15 for the provincial. So we're dipping down to 42. It's still uncomfortably high. When we got down to the 30 percent range, it was a wonderful thing because it allowed the government to respond forcibly to the financial crisis of 2008, and it allowed them to respond forcibly to the crisis when the pandemic hit us. That would have been a different ball game if we were sitting at 40, never mind the 70% we hit in 1995. So I think there's a lot, you know, David Dodge, the former governor has pointed, he's got a rule of thumb, your interest payment shouldn't exceed 10% of GDP. My problem with that is that you can think you're on side with that, and all of a sudden interest rates go up two percentage points and you're dead in the water. Like there's nothing you can do about it at that point. It's not a forward looking measure, but we're above that 10% right now. So 
I, w- I would desperately like to see us bring down the debt to GDP ratio back to the 30% range or even lower. And we're at 42, even with the improved result we got last year. But it's interesting. Everything's perspective. For whatever reason, that seemed to require three ministers to present the debt number. I don't ever remember that happening before. But they were all bragging that a little bit below $40 billion federal debt is down a lot from what it was previously. But I look at it. Hey, here's a really simple Keynesian take. We have a zero output gap. We shouldn't have any deficit. <laughs> and we got a big debt. If anything, we should have a surplus. So don't measure the deficit relative to the extraordinary high numbers of the pandemic. Just if measure you were, it by the economic cycle. Yeah. If you if you were to help write the fiscal update, which will happen sometime in the fall, the fall fiscal update, which I think is in November, but what would you like to see? Like what so given everything that the country is facing right now and where interest rates are now holding at 5%. If you were writing it, what, what might be some of the pieces that you'd, that you'd like to have in there going forward? What do we need? Well, I, th- I think on the fiscal side, you, you know, you, you don't, with, we're gonna have weak growth in the next two years. This is not the time for ultra austerity, but you do need a longer term plan to get us back to the 30%, which absolutely at a minimum means a fairly speedy return to a balanced budget, if not surpluses. Politicians seem to be allergic to surpluses. I don't count on that. But getting back to a balance fairly quickly, that means they've got to rein in a lot of the spending and, and not introduce an awful lot more. There's other alternatives you can do to PharmaCare. There's more modest versions of PharmaCare. We don't need the $11 billion that the PBO will say with first year and going, not at, not at this time. I think the key thing is a we're, as the Bank of Canada said, their estimate of the potential growth rate of the economy is 2%, largely driven by population growth, which in turn is largely driven by immigration. But the prospects for GDP per capita are really bad. Not only bad relative to our history, but bad almost relative to every other country. And that's what we got to focus on. And a key aspect that our business investment has been weak for over 25 years. What can we and, do to change that, really? I mean, what, what are like one or two things? Well, we, with pride, and I think it was justified, we brought down our, our extraordinarily high corporate tax rates in the early 2000s to a competitive level. But guess what? Everybody else responded to that, particularly the United States. So we have to have another knock on that. I'm not one to like subsidies and the like, but I think the conditions might be right for an investment tax credit. And we absolutely have to establish clarity on where we're going on the environmental front. We've got Alberta postponing applications for clean growth funds. We've got the confusion, the the Impact Assessment Act from the federal government has an advisory from the Supreme Court that's an overreach constitutionally. We've got gaping holes in our carbon price. Uh, the growth fund, those head headlines that existed for two years, it just gave out its first grant, one, one grant <laughs> out of the whole thing. And our investment tax credit for clean growth projects hasn't given anything yet. And, you know, here's the irony. We were pulling our hairs out for years thinking we're going to do all this stuff for the environment. It's going to be for nothing because the United States would do nothing. Now all the conversation is how do we catch up to the United States? I mean, I would argue they're not doing it terribly efficiently. They're just throwing around billions of dollars of subsidies all over the place, but the, the ground is moving there and we're not moving. So we got to pull that all up together. We have so many different aspects. Now we're talking about uh, emissions limits, maybe even output limits in oil and gas. So that's not consistent with some of the other measures. So that needs to be straightened out. And my bet is that, that won't, we won't see that in the fall update, but we need to see that. And undo a whole bunch of the stuff we did. It's like, don't be putting special taxes on financial institutions. You know, 
maybe if you want some kind of large profit tax during the pandemic, I wouldn't even do that. But an ongoing one, that's just back to the bad days we had of the 1990s. So do you see, John, the Bank of Canada adjusting their target from 2% to maybe 2.5? And they might throw it out there for even to even higher. This seems to be a debate around the world. Well, we could put that bait on rest because legally they can't do it. <laughs> They're, okay. They just signed a five-year agreement with the bank, right. with the government of Canada at 2%. So that, that ship has sailed for the next five years. That that ship has sailed for a while. And, and you know, we've had this debate every renewal since 1992. <laughs> and every time it's come, the, the problem with going below 2%, as we know from experience in Japan, it is ugly, ugly, ugly when you get in deflation. And the lower you put your target towards that zero, the more chance you've got to get a negative number. So that always cools the jets uh, going lower. But, you know, there's a cost of inflation. And it's most obvious if somebody's on a fixed income. Um, but you, you waste a lot more time shopping around. You have a lot more difficulty of labor negotiation. Uh, there, there was a reason why 2% was picked. And I, I don't think anything we've known in the subsequent 30 years has really knocked that off its roost. Was the hold on interest rates more for political or market reasons? What do you think? Could they have I, raised, for instance? I think despite the premier's mouthing off and shockingly the finance minister doing a high five when they did the previous hold, why in the world she did that, I have no idea. I think that had no impact on the Bank of Canada. If the politicians hadn't said a word, we have exactly the same thing. Um, they're independent in their structure and believe me, they pride themselves on that independence. So, so I, I don't think any of that had it. But you know, there's a brilliant editorial cartoon in the Globe and Mail this morning with Tiff Macklin all wrapped up in this octopus with all these different pressures from the tentacles and all the politicians going tut, tut, tut. And he said, you, you know, you're not helping, right? <laughs> and I, I thought that was really brilliant. Are interest rates high relative to the current debt load versus the historical debt load? You touched on that earlier. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you, you've talked about the debt load. You may have answered that, actually, but just reprise your answer slightly. I, I think one thing we need to all wrap our minds around, interest rates aren't particularly high. So even if we were running a 2% rate of inflation, interest rates are typically higher than the rate of inflation because one hopes you get a real return on your investment. <laughs> we don't save all this money thinking we're going to get a negative return. So like a normal short-term interest rate would probably be two and a half to three and a half percent. And one would hope there's some return to lending money long-term and investing long-term, like another positively slope yield curve. So, you know, a normal level for a 10-year bond yield is easily four to five percent. And we're just sitting above four percent. Right. So there's nothing particularly abnormal about the level of interest rates now. Maybe the short one's a little bit high because they're trying to to slow down the economy, but not typically high. Again, we have to go back. The abnormality was the near zero interest rates for a long period of time. And I think you could argue, and I certainly argued, that caused a whole mess of problems. Right. Yeah. I mean, arguably, it, it drove up housing prices. I don't know what your thought is on that. But um, you've spoken to us before about the level of interest rates when you bought your first home and it, what it did. It sort of forced you to, to, to pay data on the mortgage like as quickly as possible. Do you think that will be the case going forward? I mean, I think at the moment, everyone's just in a lot of pain and, and it, in many cases, kind of trauma over over what's happening with, with mortgage rates in their own lives. But do you see a longer term effect or a medium term effect of people 
trying to pay down the mortgage faster? Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, a lot of the mortgages do have a provision you can pay 10 and sometimes it's 15% per year on a calendar year against the principal without a penalty. And we're seeing a lot of that happen. We're seeing a, a lot of the people who have these super low interest rate mortgages anticipating when they got renewal getting hit. You can see them taking advantage of, of, of these. And that's absolutely the right thing to do. I, I've been very interested. You know, we have three financial institutions that not only have variable interest rates, but combine the variable interest rates on the mortgage with a fixed monthly payment. And it's been very interesting to see these uh, comment, these letters they've been sending out to the clients because, you know, a lot of people said, why don't people get it? And I said, well, read the bank's letters and you'll understand. They were pretty wishy-washy wording for a long time. Oh, by the way, you're hardly paying any interest at all because you're, you know, you're paying fifteen hundred a month, and it's all, not hardly any of it's going to principal. But when we got to the point where the principal is going up, the letter became very stark, and and I, I I held a copy of it up and I said, I think people are going to get it now. Like I started off with a three hundred thousand dollar principal, and now I'm at three thirty. That kind of got your, that, I think that got people's attention. And, and that's pretty depressing because it's pretty again, depressing. So, so give us your call on, you know, I mean, whether you see a recession coming based on interest rates. It's a bit of a pet peeve of mine, this industry around a session, because so just to remind people, a recession technically is two consecutive mega quarters. Right. But then there's a whole other rule. They have to be significant. They can't just be due to one thing. So it, it's more of an art than a science. Maybe it doesn't matter. Let's just take the Bank of Canada's forecast. Okay. Their forecast for the economy in the next two years is between zero and one percent growth. That is very weak. That's all we need to know. Right. Like, if it's a minus point two or a plus point two, I don't care. <laughs> it's almost zero growth, and that's what we're going to get. And 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 yet, if there's a minus in front of it, even if it's got three decimal points, all I had to be recession. And if it's plus point three decimal place, oh, we managed to skip it. Forget it. <laughs> the, the, but again, the level of activity is still high. And the unemployment rate, yes, it's gone from 5 to 5.5. But 5.5 is the second lowest we've had since the Labor Force survey started in 1976. And yes, the number of job vacancies has gone down. But there's still almost a million. Have you walked by any stores lately or a tire company or anybody else? Everybody's got a help wanted sign out there. We had, uh, you know, there was a big piece in the newspapers the other day. We take the YMCA as an example. They got 30,000 daycare spots empty because they can't get the daycare workers. You look at the personal support workers and we're going to get this doubling of the 75 age cohort. We don't have enough personal supporters workers right now. How are we going to get those workers? So the labor market in a lot of different areas is still quite tight. Put Canada in perspective for us, just briefly, sort of in terms of the policy around the world. I mean, the fiscal policy of, of G7 countries, they're all dealing with a heavy debt load. They're all dealing with inflation. In Europe, they look like they're kind of at the end of their rope in terms of raising interest rates for various reasons. Where, where does Canada fit in the overall picture of sort of comparable nations dealing with these problems? I guess the short answer is no better, or no worse than most others. But we should always go to the bottom line our productivity is near the bottom and our growth prospects. I mean, the IMF put us out. We're almost at the bottom of all their forecasts of developed economies. Our last 20 years is almost at the bottom and our projection, according to that source, is almost at the bottom. We're not, we're, we're doing 
poorly relative to our own history, but we're on the bottom line of the economic front, we're doing worse than most others. And on the environment front, you know, we're, we're lagging behind Europe. And the irony was we used to think that the United States would do nothing and drag us down. And now they're racing ahead of where what we're doing. And, and you know, the first grant from our growth fund after three years, our investment tax credit for clean growth haven't given any money yet. We got holes in the carbon pricing. The United States is spending billions, but they're racing ahead. And final question, John, was was Tiff Macklin's decision yesterday, was the Bank of Canada's decision yesterday, was it hawkish or was it dovish? I, I just, they're, they're worried. And knock off the stuff that they're dancing and they're breaking out the champagne. You got wage costs at four to five. You got the underlying inflation measures, three and a half to four percent. There's... There's, it's better than it was. Like, heck, we hit over 8% inflation or less than half of that. So I'm, I'm not trying to be all doom and gloom, but we're still stuck in the problem. And okay. it's not well, like we've created to. the slack. No, the slack isn't there yet, in, in your opinion. Don Drummond, thank you very much for joining us, for straightening out some of our views and, and adding a commentary that, that only you could. Appreciate your time. Hey, you're welcome. welcome. Bye. Thanks for joining us here today. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.